Waking up from a dream can be so disorienting. Of course, there's the dreams that are so unordinary and separate from reality that we know it was a dream. You know, flying, superpowers, Ryan Gosling serenading you or all of it happening at once. <laughs> but then there are the dreams that are so ordinary that they can convince us they're real. I had a dream uh, that I was an exceptional basketball player. Uh, I woke up and it felt true, but alas, nothing had changed. I can't slam a three-pointer or, or dump a basket or whatever is basketball. Um, <laughs> Fantastic or ordinary, either way, we know what it is to wake up with a lingering sense of a dream that slowly evaporates as our day goes on. Waking up from a dream uh, is how many of us feel in life. As the philosopher Charles Taylor says, our, our age is haunted. We can't shake this sense of the beyond, a lingering feeling that there's something more to this life than what we see in the everyday moment. And he says we're haunted by transcendence. The author Julian Barnes in his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that is the spirit of our age. Now, it doesn't matter if you're agnostic or atheist or uh, someone trying to persuade yourself of faith. We all fumble around in a dark and haunted world, and we're not quite able to settle in to this myth that this world is all there is, because there's moments of beauty, symphonies and poetry, births and celebrations, incredible meals in the company of loved ones, or breathtaking scenes and scents from nature. They awaken the sense of awe within us, and they poke holes in the ceiling of this here and now is all you get world. And then the light starts to shine through, or at least we think it does, but then we're not so sure. This lingering sense that our world is living in the shadow of something more is what our passage is all about. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that there are sketches within this world that are just that, sketches, but they are indeed sketches of something real, something beyond, something more. And there are shadows in this here and now world that are cast by the eternal, that are cast by what is real, that are cast by God himself. But now these sketches and these shadows have been eclipsed by something much better. So as we work through this passage this morning, here's the question that I want to ask that will guide us. What is it like to live not in the sketches and shadows of God, but in God's very presence? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of the church Bibles home with you. We would love for you to have that. And everything will also be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The author of Hebrews has been constructing what we could call an alternative vision of reality. But in all, in all truth, he's been constructing a true vision of reality. He wants us to see things as they really are. He wants to poke holes through the ceiling of this present world and give us a glimpse of what is real. Now, if you're just joining us, let me recap what he began this letter with. He gave us a vision of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. He said Jesus is the exact imprint of God, the radiance of God. 
and that Jesus created all things, that he sustains all things, and that he is seated at the right hand of God. And since making these declarations at the beginning of his letter for the next seven chapters, he's been unpacking them and meticulously crafting a vision of Jesus and steadily leading us to this moment, which leads him to say, the point in what we're saying is this. The point is this. That yes, 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 I've been watching too much Modern Family. Yes, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But he doesn't just abide there as the Son of God. He is enthroned in majesty. He's enthroned in heaven as our great and faithful high priest who is always, always interceding for us. Jesus is in heaven. He's our high priest always offering grace and mercy and help in our times of need. This is the overarching vision of Hebrews. Jesus is in heaven. He's in transcendence. He's in the very presence of God, in the holy place, the true home of God. But this doesn't sound very real to us, does it? Day in, day out, where is your awareness of heaven? of heavenly thrones, of God, the unseen, invisible, and yet eternal reality, it sounds more like a dream to us. What sounds more like reality to us is what comes next in verses four through five. We read, now, if Jesus were on earth, good start, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on this mountain. Now, sure, he's talking about a profound religious and spiritual experience that takes a bit of work to understand, but at least the experience is taking place on our turf, in the visible, in the seen, in the tangible, in the things that we can touch and understand. And throughout history, though, among every culture and every people, there have been complex religious systems set up. They've established priests. They make their offerings. They speak of encountering transcendence. And many people suggest that humanity does this to help ourselves cope, to find purpose in an otherwise purposeless world, to find a sense of awe. The psychologist and researcher Jonathan Haidt uh, is a pioneer in studies on awe, which I think must be a fascinating career. And he defines it as the emotion of self-transcendence, much like what you feel when you see a great cat gif. Awe is an emotion of self-transcendence. And his research led him to conclude this, that the human mind simply does perceive divinity and sacredness whether or not God exists. He's an atheist and he's a Jewish man and he says, look, the human experience fundamentally believes it's encountering the sacred or divine, whether or not God exists. However, the author of Hebrews argues that there's more to ancient Judaism than just evoking nice, strong feelings of awe. Moses actually encountered God. He was actually receiving instructions from God. And while what he set up was just a shadow and a copy of everything God showed him, 
All that he was doing can't be reduced down to just the pursuit of feeling self-transcendence because he had encountered transcendence. He had encountered reality. He had encountered God. And now he's creating a shadow and a sketch of what is actually real. And the ancient Israelites, they felt awe too, not just because of their religious system, but because of a real and authentic encounter with God. And through their religious worship, yes, they felt awe, but it was because they were drawing closer to reality, to what is actually real. But that was the limit too. You could draw closer to reality. You could feel a strong sense of connection to it, but you couldn't draw into reality itself. The the Israelites had to settle for what the the author of Hebrew calls a shadowy outline, a sketch plan, a reflection, a phantom, or a silhouette of what is real. They were always chasing shadows. That is until the one casting the shadows came into our existence. But for now, let's recognize this. All of us, all of us, ancient Israelite or not, All of us experience awe. I'm a little unusual for someone who grew up in the great Pacific Northwest. Uh, When the outdoors, they just don't do much for me. Forests, mountains, the ocean, it's all nice, but what's the big deal? Like, I really don't understand when people are posting on Instagram, like, went on a hike, hashtag blessed. I'm like, you just went on a hike, get over it. But when I was a kid, My parents packed our bags and they took our family to Maui, I think to this exact resort. And uh, we enjoyed the beaches. I got a sick tan. Uh, I went to Luau and the sugarcane fields. Uh, But while we were there, they insisted that we experience uh, the Halakala sunrise. Has anyone done this? The Halakala sunrise. If you're not familiar with Maui, uh, this is a a volcano that takes up 75% of the island. And you can ascend uh, 10 thousand feet into the air uh, uh, by ascending this volcano, and you can view the sunrise or sunset. And for reasons beyond comprehension, my parents chose the sunrise over the sunset. And so we woke up at 3 a.m. and headed up the mountain, and I'm grumbling, and my sister and I are bickering, and it's dark, and it's cold, and my parents are surely doubting their decision, and it's boring. But roughly three hours later, around 6 a.m., we saw the sunrise and we were enveloped by colors and glory and, and warmth or perhaps the sunrise saw us. Like my, however old I was, my mind just lost sense of reality. And, and honestly, I don't remember much from my childhood, which, you know, if you're a psychologist, you probably want to talk to me about. But uh, <laughs> this memory, I, I remember it vividly. Now, I can't describe it well, but I can tell you what I felt. I felt Oh, I felt like I disappeared compared to the magnitude of the sun, the glory of what I was seeing. It's similar to the awe I felt when I held Ansley for the first time at the hospital and the same awe that I felt when I held Maggie for the first time. The same, same awe I feel every time I eat a steak. And I'm sure, amen, amen. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have similar experiences of awe, perhaps even more regularly than I do. You know, you feel awe from a sunset or a beautiful moment or a meal or your favorite spots or the right company. But if we feel awe and we stop there, we're actually stopping short. We're actually diminishing the emotion because it's not meant to be the end in itself. Awe is a transitory emotion. 
Even if the existence of God right now seems at best to you a dream, if you felt awe, it's because you have a soul that is crying out for more than this. It's because you have a part of you that knows deep down in your core that goodness and beauty carry more substance and truth than suffering and evil, and you can't shake it. Because awe is an emotion God has given us that disrupts the power of the here and now. The what you see is what you get perspective. It's a sketch of eternity in our hearts. And indeed, it's an emotion that calls out for more. You could even say the emotion is a prayer. God, you must be out there somewhere. This has to mean more than this. But awe is a transitory emotion. When our girls were born, if I just felt awe and when the emotion ended, stopped there and handed them off and said, okay, someone raise them now, that would be the emotion stopping short. Awe comes to maturity in producing love. And love is not just a feeling you quickly learn in parenthood. It is an action, a repeated action with no praise or gratitude. Awe must transition into something else. Otherwise, it's just a neat feeling in the same way. If the awe we experience in creation does not transition into belief or praise or worship or gratitude or giving thanks to God, it's stopping short. Because then we're just marveling in the creation, a good creation, but not in the creator. Now, if every person can feel awe, and everyone can, a sense of self-transcendence, just from being alive in this world or experiencing the sketches and shadows that are available in different religious systems, how much more awe should we feel when we actually draw near to reality, when we actually encounter transcendence? How much more awe should we feel if reality actually drew into creation in the person of Jesus Christ? How much more awe should we feel in his presence? Look at verse 6 through 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant because the new covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. I love it. The author's like uh, channeling his inner, like Bill and Ted's excellent adventures, right? Like it's much more excellent, man. Like this, this new covenant is something way better better than ever before, better promises. Because what God has done, it draws a line, a distinction between what is old and what is new. Jesus has done something much more excellent than the old covenant, something worthy of even more awe. So let's start here. What is a covenant? A covenant is essentially a contract with set terms and an agreement. God and his people, they met they made some mutual promises to one another and they established consequences for any party who might break the covenant. But here's the thing. The people always got the better end of the deal. Think of it like getting an allowance as a kid. You and your parents enter into an agreement. You do some chores, chores like cleaning up after your own mess, chores like cleaning your room, Chores like helping around in the house you live in for free. And in the deal, you get your parents' money. Something doesn't seem balanced in this equation. But the parents often give gladly. They give more than what they receive. It's the same with God's covenants. 
He gives us much more than he receives back. We get the better end of the deal, and he does so gladly. And so with this in mind, look at verses 8 through 9. The author quotes from Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, who prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. God says, I took my people by the hand. Uh, He's literally saying, I took their hands and I placed them in mine and I led them out of slavery. I led them out of oppression. I led them out of a horrible existence and delivered them into something significantly better, something they could never attain in their wildest dreams or on their own. But if you read about this intimate deliverance, this hand-holding salvation, you see the people of Israel, they felt and experienced awe. They couldn't believe what was happening. They were filled with awe, but it didn't translate into anything more. You see, awe is not enough to keep a relationship going. Almost immediately, the people didn't continue in the covenant. Like, almost immediately, they didn't uphold their end of the bargain. And it seems, according to the author of Hebrews, that God took his out clause. He was no longer legally obligated to help these people. And so we read in verse 9, God said, I showed no concern for them. But is this the end? Humanity fails. God shows us no concern. And he leaves us fumbling about, haunted by the lack of his presence. Does he leave us only with shadows and sketches, but not the reality that they seem to point to? Does he leave us feeling haunted by transcendence, but not actually being able to find what's real? If you look to the story, the whole story, the answer is a resounding no. Look at Hebrews again, verse 10. In its entirety, it reads, for they did not continue in my covenant, And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one saying to his brother, know the Lord for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Even when God's people broke the covenant, even when God was no longer obligated to keep the covenant, even when God says, I show them no concern under that covenant, it's because God already has something better in mind. When the people fail to keep their end of the bargain to receive his promises and blessings, God says, well, then I'll give you something even better. And what we discover is that God is faithful and just and merciful and kind to his people, not because of any contractual obligation, but because of who God is. So if you want to experience the depths of awe, then we must contemplate Jesus, who opened up this reality of a new and much better covenant for us, one filled with better promises because this is what it's like to move out of the shadows and into what's real. 
And while there's a lot of promises contained in these few verses, I want to focus on just two. The first is this. From the depths of our heart, from our being, from our center, from our core, from our souls, we will know and follow God. Now, that doesn't sound so revolutionary at first, but the problem with the first covenant wasn't God. It wasn't his ability to uphold his end of the bargain or the promises he made. The problem was the fickle nature of humanity's heart. We couldn't hold up our end of the bargain. God says, don't do this, and we immediately think, I should do that. And so we couldn't adhere to the deal because external directions and rules can't change our hearts. And now, we're told, under the new, from the depths of our being, from the center of who we are, not only will we know God, and that word is the same word used to describe the, the knowledge of a husband and wife with one another. Not only will we know God in the depths of our soul in an intimate and abiding way, we'll also have the desire to follow God. William Barclay uh, puts it like this under the new covenant. The promise is that people would obey God, not because of the terror of punishment, but because they love God in their hearts. People would obey God, not because the law ordered them unwillingly to do so, but because the desire to obey him was written in their hearts. It would not be an external law which would affect an unwilling obedience. The desire to obey would be in a person's own heart. What a fundamental shift. But how? How do our hearts go from being unwilling to do what God asks of us to this place of joyously doing what God asks of us because in the core of who we are, we desire that over our own ways. What change takes place in our hearts so that we pursue God, not out of obligation or pressure or fear or guilt or trying to please and earn God's favor, but that in our center of our being, we know him and we delight in being with him. How does that change take place? This leads us to the second promise. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Our sins won't be remembered. Now we should ask that as a question first. Our sins won't be remembered? The hurts we've inflicted intentionally or unintentionally on others? The gossip, the quiet Judgments, the cheating, the affairs, the unethical shortcuts to success, the white lies, the big lies, the sexual immorality, the hatred, the things we've intentionally done, and even the things we're unaware of having done. How can God no longer remember these things? And then if we zoom out to society, to the world, people who abuse others in the name of God, the pillaging of our earth for our own benefit, the blind eye we turn constantly with every purchase to modern day slavery, the sex trafficking that takes place in our own city, the systematic racism around the world, the sexual assault culture that we would just rather not address because it's inconvenient, the genocides. God will no longer remember these things. How? How is that possible? 
One of my favorite shows of all time is House. Any House fans in here? It's a show about a grouchy medical doctor. And um, there's this episode where House and his team treats this woman with a rare but real condition of possessing an extremely perfect memory. And so she has the ability to completely recall every single moment of every single day. And she remembers everything, which sounds cool until you realize she remembers everything. But the heart of the episode is actually an exploration of this woman's relationship with her sister. And she's unable to forgive her sister. And she explains why. It's common sense. It's simple math. She's hurt me more than she's helped me. Most people edit their memories. They add small little lies so they don't have to face the truth. But I can't do that. She can't forgive because she remembers. And our memories, we all know this, make it all the more harder to forgive Because we don't live in the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where we can have memories removed that are inconvenient. And this makes forgiveness all the more harder. And our inability to forgive past trauma or disappointment or hurt combined with the way our brains actually store this information, because you know this, you remember something hurtful and you don't just remember what took place, but you feel it again too. And so the way we remember things, the way our brains store the things, makes it all the more difficult to forgive. And so from our own experiences, we know our memories make it hard to forgive. So how can the God who remembers everything forgive us, forgive this world? Our memories, the average person here doesn't have a perfect memory, except maybe, uh, I don't know, me, I don't know. But, you know, our memories, I was going to point someone out and then change my mind last minute. That's what happened. But our (laughs) memories are partial and incomplete, and our perspective is subjective. But God, he can see our entire lives spread before him. He can remember every single time in thought, word, and deed that we've refused him or rejected him or run away from him. And things we may have even forgotten or things that we might write off just as sins of our youth, God remembers it all. So how can God, the God who remembers everything, forgive us? Jeremiah prophesied, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. But hear me, God doesn't just forgive and forget. He does something so much better. God sends his son from reality into this shadowy existence. The son of God becomes one of us. He meets us on our turf, on our terms, in our language, in ways that we can touch, see, and experience. And Jesus, we discover, came into the world not just to make a splendid appearance, but for one purpose, to seek and save all that was lost in God's creation. And so he goes to the tree, the cross, and we're told that the righteous one became unrighteous, that the one who was innocent bore wrath, the one who was perfectly just in everything he did experienced grave injustice, that somehow mysteriously on his body, he took everything that is wrong in this world, everything that is wrong in our souls, and he bore it in his body and he died. And do you know what that means? It means this. Our sins are obliterated. 
gone. Slate wiped clean. That when the prophet Jeremiah says, God no longer remembers your sins, it's not that God is forgetful. It's that the core of God's being is so forgiving and so able to completely forgive through what his son has done that he has no remembrance of your sins. They've been destroyed by the gift of the cross. Now, this reality is difficult to explain. It's difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to understand with our minds, which is why we have to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would help us experience this reality. Now, Scripture, though, has a few other ways of articulating it that I want to point to. Psalm 103. Consider this psalm. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. That alone is good enough news. But then the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sins from us. Or as the prophet Isaiah said on behalf of God, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I've redeemed you. Our sin has been put away, removed, swept away like a cloud. And this is a source of unending awe, better than anything you can find on earth. A theologian from the 19th century, uh, Albert Barnes, wrote, Nothing can more strikingly represent sin in its nature and consequences than a dense, dark, frowning cloud that comes over the heavens and shuts out the sun and fills the air with gloom. And nothing can more beautifully represent the nature and effect of pardon than the idea of removing such a cloud and leaving the sky pure, the air calm and serene, and the sun pouring down his beams of warmth and light on the earth. So the soul of a sinner is enveloped and overshadowed with a dense cloud, but pardon dissipates that cloud, and it is calm and joyful and serene. Do you understand what Barnes is saying? Sin is why we are haunted by transcendence. Sin has cast a cloud over our entire existence in which God is now hidden from our sight. And that is why we live in shadows and in darkness, in the partial and the incomplete. And that's why we're fumbling around, having a sense that there's more, but no certainty that there is. And so if you're being haunted by transcendence, the idea that there has to be something more, or even just the deep, optimistic, wishful hope that there's something more. Don't ignore this inclination. Vancouver's own Douglas Copeland wrote, I don't deserve a soul, yet I still have one, and I know this because it hurts. That hurt, that yearning, that wish for depth and meaning you're feeling, that is your soul hurting and longing and desiring for what it knows exists. And when you feel awe in this world, that is your soul crying out to God because it's a transitory emotion that's meant to lead us to belief and to praise and to worship and to enjoying God. And so back to our guiding question. What is it like to live not in the sketches and shadows of God, but in God's very present. It's filled with wonder and awe. God himself has opened up 
his presence. He has shown us the depths of his heart, the extent that he is willing to go for every single person in this room and every single person you've ever locked eyes with, saying, I will die for their sins in their place by sending myself as my son. And this changes our hearts. Because when you understand the depths of your forgiveness, that you are totally and completely and wholly forgiven, that God has no remembrance of your sin, but in his presence, he delights in you and loves you and cherishes you. You suddenly have this source of unending awe because the source of your awe is Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, who left everything for us, who left transcendence in heaven and came to this earth and descended to the deepest darkness we can't even comprehend. All to show us the depths and profundity of God's forgiveness. So when you fix your eyes on his beauty, when you fix your eyes on his love for you, when you fix your eyes on his willingness to do whatever it takes for you, you won't only be filled with awe your soul will discover the calm serenity it's yearning for. Because Jesus has done everything for you to live in God's presence. He has done everything you need to enter into that reality, not only to draw near, but to live in that reality. You only need to fix your eyes on him and let him fill your heart with awe and wonder that will transform into the desire to follow and know God. The author of Hebrews concludes in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We will only be haunted for a little while longer until we fully enter into what is actually real. And on that day, when we enter into God's eternal presence, our awe will be transformed into unending joy. And it's only a matter of time, a short amount of time, before we will all stand face to face with God and his glory unveiled. And so in the meantime, draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Because when you do, you will draw near to what is really real. And you'll feel awe, but you'll find so much more than awe. You'll find the love and forgiveness of God.